0: scanning identity authorized welcome to the secret superhero club podcast network Welcome everybody to the Animation Station podcast. My name is Josh, and today I'm joined by friend of the show, Jared Mariama. How's it doing? How, how you doing, Jared?
1: <laughs> very good, very good. Thank you for having me on.
0: And today we're joined by two of the members from Taiko Studios to talk about their short film, One Small Step. So today we have um, founder of Taiko, Xiao uh, Fu Zhang, and we have the <clears throat> excuse me, we had have the head of development, Andrew Chesworth. How's it going, guys? Hey, good. How are you guys doing? Great. Right? All right. So let's go ahead and talk about one small step. So first off, um, main question is for uh, Xiaofu. So what made you want to go and start Taiko? Like, what was the what was the drive from leaving Disney and going in and starting this new studio?
2: Um, well, it, it started. Uh... A few years back, actually, I had always had this idea in the back of my mind of doing something a little bit more independent. I had worked at uh, Sony and Disney um, collectively for about seven years professionally. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I always thought that there was something else to animation that maybe I could push forward or um, in, in some way take a part of. And so the opportunity came when... Uh, I had been going back and forth between uh, US and China for a while and uh, I had applied for basically this entrepreneur contest that uh, I had heard of just in passing that my father had told me about and uh, he helped me apply for it and the basic idea was I want to start an animation studio in uh, w- with the Chinese market in mind but having kind of a global um, appeal because, you know, um, my background, I grew up in the U.S., so the kind of east and west, uh, having that bridge and using my expertise uh, for this new emerging market that was still relatively young. Uh, and so I initially pitched the idea to this little, uh, it, it was kind of this like dingy Sheraton kind of hotel space, and uh, it, it was only like maybe a couple dozen people in the crowd, uh, we made it to the top ten. They flew me out to Hanzhou, uh, China, and there, it, uh, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was basically a nationally televised Shark Tank kind of event. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so we we did the whole spiel, hair, and makeup, and then I pitched the idea. Uh, we ended up third place, and after that, it was this flurry of uh, investors, VCs, and... Um, all kinds of government support and then so that's when we got our angel round of funding and uh, I was able to start the company and after that uh, once it became real I started to talk to people that I already had in mind that were really fantastic artists and what kind of uh, team would I want to create like this this idea that I had of like oh man it, it'd be great if I had this dream team of people of uh, artists that I really admired and respected, so I reached out to Andrew Chesworth and Bobby Pontius and uh, Joy Johnson and Andrew Jennings, and we started talking about the kinds of projects that we wanted to work on. But because we were working, you know, professionally at Disney and, and you know th- these other places, that those opportunities weren't so readily apparent. So, yeah, that that's <laughs> kind of the, the short version of how it all
1: started. So, when you pitched this thing at this contest, what what were you pitching exactly? An animation studio, or like the, just the setup that it's a U.S. and a China sort of collaboration? What what were you pitching exactly?
2: Well, so just to give a little context, I think it was also the perfect storm uh, kind of timing uh, that year. It was uh, 2015, and the contest was in November. And uh, during the summer of that year. Uh, a movie came out called Monkey King um, Hero is Back. And this movie was the first domestically made, like Chinese domestically made, fully feature animation movie that uh, on an $11 million budget made $155 million back. And at that point, investors, um, studios, they all recognized... The market is there, and this is the beginning of something different now. That there, there is a market. There's an audience, and they they want to see domestically made or more Chinese-influenced movies uh, against all the other things that are, you know, Disney, Pixar, DreamWorks, you know, all, all the all the uh, American majors. And so at that point, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of buzz that now's the time for the domestic animated. Uh, market in China to really grow and succeed Hmm. yeah so so against that backdrop uh, we had you know just initially it was just an idea it was just I just pitched this idea that I want to make an animation studio where we have a base in China but we also have a strong base in the U.S. because that's where a lot of my uh, expertise and resource and network is and to have the best of both worlds because you had all this up-and-coming talent in China that was emerging, and they were getting better and better, and and now I think it's at a point where uh, there are some studios that are doing stuff that's on par with what's uh, being produced in the U.S., so the the talent just keeps getting better, and the market is huge. Uh, This last quarter, quarter one 2018, uh, the domestic... Chinese uh, box office revenue was 42% higher than uh, the US in the same time frame. Mm.
1: Yeah. So
2: it's, yeah. So, and this year or next year, it's on track to exceed the movie market uh, in the US. So, all of these things coming together, it's like uh, it it just became a very opportune and uh, great timing for this kind of idea, I think.
0: Now, I, I, I'll be the first to admit, I am pretty ignorant on Chinese animation studios. Are there mm-hmm. a lot of them? I know, I know you said in 2015 that we have our first one that really kind of like breaks that mold. Um, are, there yeah. a, are there currently a lot of animation studios in China?
2: Uh, there are a lot of animation studios, but there are very few that are actually capable of uh, work that is comparable or that can compete with the, uh, the majors in the U.S., now, um, I would say that there's maybe three studios in China right now that are creating original IP, original content in a meaningful way and doing it at a level that is comparable or can compete with um, international standards. Uh, and then the other, there's, there's a lot of studios out there that their, their main bread and butter is outsourcing. It, it's still the case. Um, but it's starting to change, and I think uh, moving forward is is just going to grow from there.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Now you were both uh, animators on um, Moana, Zootopia, Big Hero Six. How exactly did you guys meet? Because I, I don't really know how like the animators go. Uh, like I don't know. You guys go out for coffee. I don't I don't know how this, I don't know how that <laughs> part works.
3: <laughs> I mean Disney is a bit of an incubator, and even though you can, um, by happenstance, interact with people from other departments, like modeling, texturing, lighting, rigging. The animators are a collection of about a hundred people, give or take, depending on production, that are in a fairly contained area. So there's a lot of meetings, a lot of overlap, and if there's a new face in the room, people generally identify it. (laughs) Uh, Shaofu came in in very early 2014, while we were making a short called Feast. And I think he actually introduced himself. I think you came into my office. That was when I was across from another animator named Hyunmin Lee. And I think you were kind of very proactive about introducing yourself to people. I was very impressed.
2: I was, yeah, yeah. I remember, I I just, uh, I mean, it was always a dream to work at Disney and then just coming in and all these people that I had seen either demo reels of or I had heard of by other people that they were, you know, these amazing animators. And uh, I, I remember, uh, Andrew Chesworth, because of all of his amazing stuff that he had done, uh, that he would put on the internet, and uh, I don't know, just just everybody there. I felt wide-eyed and just kind of, uh, just kind of soaking it in, and I just wanted to meet as many people as possible, and just. Uh, because I, I had gone under the, I basically just assumed, okay, this is going to be my one project, and then they're going to figure out I'm, I'm not so good,
3: <laughs> and then they're just going <laughs> to let me go after this. But while I'm here, I might as well
0: appreciate it.
3: No, it was great. He, he, Shelfu makes a great first impression, and I knew right away that he was very intelligent and very discerning and very talented. I mean, the first shots he submitted on Feast, I was like, that is some nice polish. Look at the ease in on that head turn. (laughs) Like, there was just really good technique on display in the very first shots. And I'll admit, I didn't know uh, a lot of the animators at Disney who were in CG before I got there. I kind of grew up knowing and kind of nerding out about a lot of the 2D people. And my knowledge of CG animators was sort of isolated to artists that they would talk about on the Pixar documentary, or Pixar behind the scenes, like The Incredibles commentary, they had an animator's commentary, and those were the names that I knew. So when I got to Disney, I was meeting a lot of people from Sony and Rhythm and Hues for the first time, it was the first time I'd heard of them. So, but by the time Shelfu got there, I'd had a couple of years to get familiar with that community and get to know more names, and, and just how amazing some of these people were that I'd never heard of. It was like, Wow. <laughs> Yeah. It's a it's a really robust team there right now. Um I was really impressive for people.
1: I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that Andrew. Uh, when 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 did you know whether this was as a kid or or as a teenager? When did you know that animation was what you wanted to do as a career? I think we all grew up liking cartoons and sort of being fascinated to a certain degree, but when did when was it for you that you knew that you wanted to pursue this as a career?
3: That's a great question because the answer is hard to pinpoint to an exact moment because I don't remember a time when I didn't want that. I mean, just the (laughs) other day, my parents were at my house because they came to our One Small Step premiere, uh, and my mom brought me a drawing I did when I was two. I don't remember it, but it's a drawing of a train, and it's just like a few scribbly lines, but it is very... I showed it to my girlfriend, and I was like, what do you think this is? She's like, that's a train. And the date (laughs) on it was, I think... um, It's summer of 1987, so I was like two years and some change when I made it. Wow. uh, And I remember the first things I was watching as a kid were like Dumbo and like The Brave Engineer, like a lot of the old Disney cartoons that had trains in them. I was like obsessed with trains, and to me trains and animation were kind of the same thing, which is a weird thing (laughs) to say. But they went together and then I got older and I realized all the old Disney animators like Ollie Johnston and and Ward Kimball and even Walt Disney himself were obsessed with trains and Ollie Johnston articulated it really well once and he said the compulsion or the uh, attraction that animators have to trains is because it's exotic, it's complex and it almost feels like a living beast that breathes and chugs and huffs and it moves and you see all the moving parts on the exterior of the train working. So it's a very curiosity inspiring thing. It's like not really a man or a beast and it's not really a machine. It's like this creature that huh. inspires the imagination of children who are curious about that sort of thing. But I thought that was a really great explanation of why that's compelling to people who like animation. Um, so yeah, yeah, it started really young for me as, as well as drawing.
1: And Shaofu uh, for you, was there a particular film or a moment where you knew that this is uh, sort of gonna dominate the rest of your life?
2: Um, I, am actually coming from the complete opposite, uh, end of that, <laughs> where I, I, I didn't want to be, uh, I, I became an animator very, very late in my career. So growing up, I, I loved, um, Spielberg movies, uh, uh, Jurassic Park and E.T. were the two movies that I had on repeat, like, all the time. Uh, I, I appreciated Disney movies. I, I had, uh, Bambi and, uh... Peter Pan. Th- those are the two movies that, hmm. yeah, like fr- from the Disney collection. But uh, really, I-, I just enjoyed movies. And uh, growing up as a kid, you know, we, we all like cartoons. Uh, I, I love Looney Tunes and especially the Chuck Jones stuff. Um, but I I remember as a kid I, I was into. Uh, I-, I figured out how to do stop motion with Play-Doh and my dad's old Hi-8 camera. Where if you like push the button real fast you you can just catch a few frames and and if you like tape it to the ground and do that you know you you can start doing a little stop motion thing uh i I remember playing with legos and uh making little short films uh based on like you know like all kinds of zany stories uh i I was really into james bond when i was a kid so i I made (laughs) lego spy movies and um and then in college, I, I went into film production and uh, direction. That, that was my major for my bachelor's and uh, made a few short films and started working at a film studio for a year, but realized I didn't like that so much. And uh, and I think it, it was around that time where uh, Pixar became like the cool thing. And, and they started coming out with these uh, behind the scenes DVDs. And, and I remember watching those and, and realizing like, wow, this is... This is kind of the perfect marriage of all the things that I like about computers and filmmaking and doing it in this new medium. And, uh, you know, like, it, it it seemed very intriguing to me at the time. So I started doing research and uh, found out there's actually schools for this stuff and you can actually have a career in it. And uh, so I chose the one. I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, so I chose the one that was, like, oh. furthest away from my hometown. <laughs> at Academy of Art University in San Francisco at the other, you know, the other side of the country. And um, it was there that I actually discovered how much I loved animation and, uh, and had some great teachers. Uh, and um, One teacher in particular, Michael uh who's a Pixar uh, animator. And uh, yeah, he kind of opened my eyes to just the possibilities. And um, from there, I just fell in love with it.
0: All right, so let's go ahead and let's talk about the short. So let's talk about One Small Step. <coughs> so what brought, and Jared and I have both seen this, and I assume you guys who, who created it, I assume you guys have seen it? A <laughs> couple of times. A couple of times. Okay, okay, that's good. I kind of remember it. A okay. well, little hazy, but. <laughs> um, so, so what brought the idea for doing, like, for, for this short? Uh,
3: so... Bobby Pontius, who's not here at the moment, he and his friend Trent Corey developed it together at Disney, and they actually pitched it there for their shorts program a few years ago, Uh, and they, I think, got a couple of rounds of iterative notes on the concept, uh, and then it wasn't selected for development beyond those initial pitches, so the rights to the idea reverted back to them. So when Chow Fu was reaching out to all of us to start the studio, Bobby had this short that had been developed and at least seen and vetted by the Disney crew. So that gave us a great starting point, and we own the rights to it, and we all like the idea, so it felt felt like a great springboard, especially because the tone of the film was so aspirational as it was conceived. The little girl who just dreams of being an astronaut and every life choice she makes is aimed towards that goal, and then we see little vignettes of those life choices through the shoes she wears or the steps she takes. Um, So that concept resonated with us really early, and it did go through a lot of different iterations, but the core concept and the core theme and belief of the film remains. Hmm. Shafu, I
1: wonder if I could ask you, as the founder, what were you looking for when you set out to do the first project? Did you have something in mind, or did you just really open it up to to people to sort of pitch ideas for this?
2: Uh, Well, initially, I... I thought for the whole team to come together and rally around a project that everyone was really uh, excited about... Um, I remember talking to Bobby about uh, ideas that he had, and uh, he uh, and, and Trent too, and, uh, and they had talked about, well, oh, there's this one project that we had, um, but we're not really working on it anymore and uh so so I was just digging a little bit more, and they they started talking about how you know it's this story about a little girl that has dreams of going to space and um, and I think just me being a a sci-fi geek, like I love Star Trek and how aspirational that is, and um that there was something to that that I think kind of mirrored the the actual adventure that we were going into, this startup, you know, this thing that was. New and kind of unknown, and we didn't know where we were going, but we were we wanted to do something different and and go to this place that you know we were kind of following our dreams and and uh, it felt like a nice fit. And then when uh, Bobby and I kind of pitched it to the rest of the team, everyone was really excited about it because it had all of these elements that I think everyone was feeling. So, and I think that's very important. Of uh, of having the whole team being excited about a project and putting, you know, your, your, your passion into it. And everyone has a way into the story, whether it's from the cultural angle or from just the character perspective of she's chasing her dream or like even our composer, Steve Horner, he felt so close to the story because he's a father and he recognized a lot of those things that You know, because he he has a daughter and and, uh, it it was so nice to talk to him about how he felt his way into it was through the father figure and watching Mm -hmm. his daughter grow up and and there was a lot of honesty to that. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, I felt that was very important that that everyone in the team had a way into it and it felt like something that we could all rally around and and, uh, really, you know, sink our teeth into.
0: So... um I just want to talk about the um, like character, like the characters, real quick. So uh, Luna is our main character. Um, does her father have a first name?
3: I don't know. if We ever gave him a first oh, name. We call him Papa Chu. Yeah, Papa. We'll, uh, Papa. Chew. Okay. Chew? We'll
0: go Papa. Um, so Leonard Chu. <laughs> Leonard, <Chew. laughs> Leonard H. Leonard H. <laughs> um, so uh, now I know uh, Bobby worked on the character designs for Tangled the series, and I. I could you can kinda tell there is a little bit of that like that design aspect. Um Mm -hmm. I I'll first off I just wanna say that I love this animation style. It's that night it it looks to me like a mix between like two D and C G and I think it looks phenomenal. So you guys did a great job on that. It looks amazing.
3: Thank you very much. That means a lot. It was it was a bold choice to go that direction, but um we really believed in it so it means a lot to hear you say that
0: Oh definitely And like to me I, I'm a fan of 2D and I will always be a fan of 2D maybe because that's what I grew up on. So whenever I see anything that's 2D or in that reminiscent esque of 2D, it really <laughs> you know I, I love it. Um, that's why like I'm like still to this day I'm a big fan of anime because they're still stuck in that 2D aspect and I absolutely love that. Um, Oh yeah! The way that you guys decided to do this—it's perfect for me.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it uh, was—I mean, Bobby and I both come from two D backgrounds. Him as a designer, and me as an animator. And um, I think we, everyone on the crew, kind of shared the inspirations. And then Bobby and Shafu and I, and Joy, all worked on Feast, and that was a really. I think, um, critical moment for us because we thought there was gonna be more of that sort of thing at Disney in the near term. And not that they're not developing stuff like that at Disney, they very well could be, but I think in the near term, we were really excited to keep going in that direction.
1: I wonder if you could talk a little more about that. What are, it's a beautiful looking film. And and like you said, this this approach, this mix of sort of a 2D, 3D look is fantastic. What are some of the challenges when trying to execute this style Uh, across a full project like this. Are there specific sort of artistic
3: challenges to sort of maintain that look? Yes. (laughs)
1: Uh,
3: Well, I I think, um, I mean, candidly speaking about technique, it's been done before, but it's more about the decisions you make in the design, the colors, the look, the cinematography, the lenses. I mean, everything kind of creates a certain effect on screen. Um, there's the French school, so Pinfocom, and they have been doing a look kind of reminiscent of this for a while, but I feel like in those films you see the separation between the 2D and the CG a little bit more, even though it's all tonally flat shaded and meant to live in the same space. And I think for us, we, um, we would observe other examples, whether it was, um, you know, something that came out of a studio or something that came out of a school or commercials that we'd worked on, where similar illustrated CG looks were attempted, and we thought, well, what do we like about it, and then what would we do differently? And I think a lot of those choices ended up coming down to some basic fundamentals of design, like line of action in the pose, maintaining a really clean ease in on a moving hold so that you don't have that sort of slightly disjointed puppety look that CG can have. Because one of the giveaways between 2D and CG is very often the way something eases in or like the timing of it. And not just like on ones and twos, but the way the shapes kind of hold their fidelity and simplicity and iconography as well as just not complicating the, the behaviors with too much extraneous movement that kind of triggers your brain, oh that's a computer not a drawing, you know. Okay. So it's it's kind of, not that we're trying to trick people, but I think there's a certain look that makes it really easy to take in and it just involves a lot of effort toward simplifying the image you're looking at as much as possible. Yeah, I feel like yeah. one of the,
2: um, the <clears> of <throat> the things that I noticed that uh, as we were developing it was uh, most of the techniques, I mean, in fact, almost all the techniques that we employed were already things that had been well-known in the industry for years, if not decades, um, and it's... Like, when you break it down, it's not difficult to do, it's just, uh, I think, it's employing all of these techniques together in a tasteful way um, that, that really makes it shine, and I think that's, that's the thing where, like, so much of it is handmade, where the computer gives you a certain thing, and every frame is just, the, the, the painstaking part is just to take that CG or that artificial edge off of it and make it feel more natural. Like, um, we we spent a lot of time on just making shadows feel more simple, right? Where Mm -hmm. we would get these renders where the shadows just felt like complicated shapes. And then we we would, uh, like, sometimes we would have these, uh, like, simple rigs that were representative of the characters. But they just cast shadows in a very simple way. Or we would Mm -hmm. just have simple geometric shapes. Or things that were much more in the, uh, kind of, the look language of the film. And stuff like that, I think, is, is more of uh, artistic and, like, a taste direction rather than uh, any kind of, like, uh, blanket technique that we were using because I feel like almost every shot was its own kind of beast where th- th- there were certain times where you would just match certain things out, but then other times you could completely use a certain uh, almost automated thing to, to give the same effect. But mm-hmm. it was on a case-by-case basis, and I think a lot of it was just... Good direction and uh good taste on the part of uh, the artists and
1: directors. one of one of the things that stood out to me was the was the fact that uh i wasn't distracted by any of the techniques i wasn't like oh look how they did that lighting that's pretty different or interesting and in fact <laughs> i think through the whole film especially it being the first project there's not a lot of like it's not like a demo reel of here's what we can do <laughs> i love that the story the <laughs> The story and the emotion is, is left to sort of play out, and uh, and that's fantastic. Uh, the other thing I noticed was how tight the film was. There it doesn't seem to be any extra beats or, like, let's have a little fun with this thing. Um, so I'm wondering if there were some sort of heartbreaking edits or, or scenes that, that were left out at the end
3: just to keep that film as tight as it is? I think... Um, there... There were different scenes and different ideas that we thought would be amusing to put in there. But um, speaking honestly, as one of the co-directors, I was happy to lose anything that we could, <laughs> because <laughs> I felt like we had a lot of story to tell. So if we could tell it with less, um, I thought that was exciting. Um, there were some moments that made us laugh for like inside joke reasons, or maybe there was a moment like, oh, it would have been cool if we showed that, you know, like I think. The one that we, we talk about a lot is during the montage of when is starting to distance herself from her father, we had a beat where she kind of comes home dressed up, like she went out dancing, like she's spending more time clubbing and partying with her friends because she has a life. Uh, and we thought, well, we don't really want to go down that road or imply, like, an off-screen relationship or, or, or even have any innuendo that she's, like, starting to entertain bad behavior. Like, so we just didn't go there, and we kept it all about just the progressive distancing uh, in terms of how she directly interacts with her dad. And then just leaving the rest as implied, you know, off-screen as much as we could. Because we had a limited time to tell our story, so we wanted to focus on the core motifs that we're reprising throughout.
0: I kind of want to go off of um, what Jared said, where, um, like, nothing was really, like, distracting. Um, I watched it three times, so and and what what I like doing is especially when I when I watch any sort of animated film I try to pay attention as much as I can to the backgrounds and <laughs> I love what you guys did in the backgrounds of that kitchen where it's not the exact same cookie cutter background that they put that you know some people would put each and every time you mm-hmm. there's like little changes things move around I thought that was great like that's the type of stuff I like whenever you see like a background character and they look just like you know, every other background character, I absolutely <laughs> hate that. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, so seeing this, and I was like, like the first time I watched it, I was like, it looked like that kettle moved and the rice cooker was like a different place. And then like, I watched it again and I see it and I'm like, they did it and that was fantastic. And then I like at the end where the whole entire time when uh, Papachu uh, keeps his, um, uh, the kettle on the right side of the rice cooker and then at the uh-huh. end, when Luna has it, it's on the left side. I thought that was great. I uh, was like, I I don't know if that's something like that you guys consciously think or if it's just like, oh, hey, we're just going to, you know, someone's going to sit there and, like, draw it different ways. Like, what, how does that go? Like, whenever you have to do any sort of, like, background um, to make oh, it not, yeah. like, super distracting for everybody but to actually show that things are progressing.
3: No, that's a, that's a really welcome observation. Thank you for noticing that because Thanks those kind con-
0: of... If you had to put yeah, it in, I would have been like, that. So Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah
3: that, well, the continuity stuff, um, there, there's a, a saying, and I wish I could attribute it to somebody directly and give them credit for it, but um, the saying is, every note is a story note. Um, whether you're talking about lighting, texture, set dressing, characters' clothing, everything is a story note. It's a story note if she's wearing the same shirt from one shot to the next versus wearing a different shirt. You know, And then you have this balancing act of, we want her to look like the same character with the same taste but we don't want her to be wearing the same red and white shirt every day. So we even had a reason of like, when she's wearing the red and white shirt, it's when she's feeling a little closer to her dream, right? And then every other day is just another day and she's wearing a different shirt that has a similar vibe to it. But with the set dressing, It was more like because we had some jump cuts, we just wanted to feel like a different day where he would like move the rice cooker, put it back, but it would be in a slightly different spot. Or if she like closed the door hard, like the picture frames would move a little bit. So some of it was direct jump cut continuity just for for texture and to show time. And then other times it was just, um, with the kitchen stuff, it was mostly just to show passage of time. Ah, uh, with the shoes on the um the shoe rack, that was more direct narrative continuity stuff, like when would she be wearing these shoes? Oh, she's wearing the blue sandals now na- the blue sandals now instead of the orange ones because even though he fixed those for her, she retired them, and she's got new sandals now, and we have the blue sandals that she's wearing when she walks home in the rain to signify that she's no longer wearing the ones that she sees in the shoe box later, so that stuff was very consciously tracked so again thank you for noticing
1: <laughs> yeah I, I imagine with animation there's nothing that's sort of accidental <laughs> Everything. <laughs> is... <laughs> it's either on purpose or just lazy yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the film has uh i believe no dialogue i mean there are some snippets of of things in there uh, was yeah, that there's, a, a there's choice the, it
0: sounds like there's like efforts and everything like laughs and like I love that, and everything the like that. There are efforts, vocal <laughs> efforts. <laughs>
1: was that um, was that always how
3: it was uh, conceived? Uh, we never talked. Like nobody ever lobbied to put dialogue in the film. It was almost funny how it was just sort of sort of understood early on that there would be no talking. Maybe because a lot of the contemporary Disney shorts that we worked on are following that similar model, and also just shorts tend to thrive on. Brevity and, and sort of poetry through music and visuals. And then even the classic Disney shorts that, that I was inspired by, the music really helps push the narrative forward. So I think we always saw it to varying degrees, uh, either in a more nostalgic way or in a more contemporary way as a movie that would be pushed forward mostly by music. Uh, I like to mention and throw shout-outs to like Ichabod Crane and Johnny Appleseed and Pecus Bill where the music is the main hero, you know, in telling the story uh, next to the animation, and then there's occasionally efforts or like a throwaway line or something just where music or something else doesn't fill it in. And I think in our case, the throwaway line would be the countdown, but that countdown creates such an iconic feeling of a rocket launch that we couldn't really do without it, and it's the original NASA open source audio, so it just felt like there's no mistaking what this is. That is a rocket launch. Yeah. Uh, and then everything else after that is, you know, like you say, efforts or, or child's laughter or something that creates a feeling more than just being uh, literal words.
2: Yeah, I, I remember the original concept, too, that uh, that we were playing around with was to tell a story through shoes. Yeah. And, and, and the different stages of life through the shoes that we wear and, you know, the, the whole idea of walking a mile and... Shoes and um, uh, I, I thought that was such a nice visual kind of uh, representation, mm-hmm. you know. That and and it didn't require any words. And I think also we were talking so much about uh, this story transcending, you know, just being for an American audience or a Chinese audience. If it's truly international, mm-hmm. if we could tell it through the visual medium. Um, and the music most of all where it like it's it's this marriage of the two that uh, you didn't really need the vocals mm-hmm. the, the, the voiceover or any kind of you know people talking uh, when you could explain it so much better just through yeah. feeling and music and, and visuals.
1: Yeah I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, uh, some of the challenges that you guys faced when working with an international team like this. I, 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 You guys have done a lot of press for this, which is fantastic. I've been able to sort of uh, catch up on a lot of the other stuff that you've said. Uh, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, uh, specifically, some examples of what those challenges would be working with an American group and then uh, also with a
3: Chinese group. Um, from a purely production interfacing standpoint, it was mostly the that relationship between there's a deadline and you have to communicate an idea efficiently in order to meet that deadline as well as the standards of quality that everybody expects so the the way we would give dailies was at six o'clock our time it's 9 a.m china time so when they're arriving at work we're finishing our day and then we have about an hour-long meeting where we give animation notes or modeling and texturing notes and we try to as effectively as possible communicate all the things that we're feeling. But even though we have translators and Shafu and Eric Lee, our animation supervisor in China, are bilingual, we found that the most effective way to give notes was through drawings. So either doing drawovers on the video file that the animators submit for review, or doing drawovers and paintovers on still images of the lighting files, and then being able to toggle back and forth between this is what you submitted and this is what it could be, and you have a very direct way of looking at and processing what the feedback is. we can probably talk a little bit more about the, the physical challenges of traveling, <laughs> and managing a team over there and um, over here. Well, cause I, mean, like, yeah. I, I just oh. know
0: like, for, for some of the recordings that we've done, we do a lot of um, voice actor interviews, and like mm. the farthest that we've gone is uh, – well, the farthest time-wise, I guess, that we've had any sort of communication was London. So uh-huh. that was that was just a struggle right, right there. I can't even imagine a 15-hour one as opposed to, like, there's, like, six, and then there's 15. And mm-hmm. I, I, I can't even imagine what that was like.
3: I think the nearer you get to like a twelve-hour difference or so, the better it becomes. What yeah, we've the, the, done that just makes it
0: like, like with the, with the six and the nine. That yeah, China it's like
3: making. yeah, fifteen hours. It's funny. I mean, not that any time difference could be considered ideal, but the China one is probably about as ideal you could get because it's like beginning and end of the workday. Mm-hmm. The few times that we've had conferencing or or, or exchanges like this with the UK, it's a, it's a slightly more awkward time difference. You know where it's. It's it's hard to it's harder to wrap your head around like, wait, what's there, <laughs> in there? Whereas in China it's almost almost exactly twelve hours and then some change, which that change makes it even more convenient because it's not like nine AM and nine PM, you know? It's mm. it's more like six PM. Yeah. So there's okay, people are still at work and we can still have like an effective meeting. So I think in that way it was there's like a, a lucky strike in terms of how the things line up that made everyone's workday a little more effective because if it was, for example, somebody's morning and somebody else's middle of the day, I feel like the momentum of production would have slowed down. Whereas That's starting cool. your day with a meeting or ending your day with a meeting, the middle of your day is relatively uninterrupted and you can kind of focus on your work or focus on your task and then either start your next day with another reconvene or end your day with a reconvene. And So a lot of the, the team messaging happens separate from when your core workday is actually occurring.
2: I think it also helps making meetings more efficient because you just have that time slot, and mm-hmm. uh, and then so we we learn very quickly not to waste too much time or, or try not to waste too much time. When,
3: <laughs> when we when,
2: definitely uh, waste the time occasionally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean it, it happens, but you know, in those team meetings, uh, we learn to actually give better notes too because you have to be clear and efficient and mm-hmm. and pretty Spartan about all of your uh, feedback in a way that. I know this is going to get translated correctly, or I, I, I know the true intention of this note stands up. Whereas yeah. sometimes I think you can get uh, wishy-washy notes or it's something that isn't quite clear. And I think uh, it it made us, it, we were forced to hold ourselves up to a higher yeah. kind of clarity standard of uh, feedback where we were forced to understand exactly, you know, the the notes that we were giving were going to be Uh, addressed in a way that uh, was was going to be satisfactory.
3: Yeah, you have to focus on what's iconic about whatever topic you're discussing. If it's the look of a shadow or the color popping against another color or the line of action in an animation pose, whatever it might be, finding what is the iconic you know core essence of that note or that idea that you're trying to put across. So at Disney, you know, they focus on appeal. It kind of relates to that a bit. Uh, when I was in commercials, it's about clarity, brevity, and iconography. And I think that mixture of that commercial mindset, it's like it's all about iconic, iconic, clear, iconic. And then at Disney, is it appealing? Do I get it? Do I understand the character and their intention in this moment? You kind of really have to use all of your visual muscles to put into your feedback what is the clearest way of putting across this idea?
1: Hmm. Uh, so, a question for both of you: You both come from big studios uh, in your background. I'm wondering, um, for so many people that work in the studio system, uh, you always say, "Well, if I were in charge, I would do this differently." <laughs> I, was <wondering, laughs> I was wondering if uh, how that has played out now that you guys sort of are in charge of these projects and can do it the way you think uh, you know best suits it. Um,
2: well i I can speak uh just because that 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 was kind of one of the original ideas was like well if I ran this place I would just do it like this and right uh, and I have a deep abiding uh respect for all the leadership of uh all of these big studios' Cause, you know being being in charge it's a it's a heavy burden to uh be responsible for all of these people, and to make sure everyone is being supported, and everyone has what they need, and they're feeling creatively satisfied, so that they can do the best work that they can do. and um, And I think that is a constant juggling act of making sure we're we're on the right path and uh, doing all these things that uh, the the artists want to do, but also we're doing good work and feeding mm. the company and you know feeding the beasts, as it were. Um, and I feel like there's some things that because we don't have a very big studio, you know, we're, we're not uh, like, you know, 500 people at this studio, we can be yeah. nimble and we can make decisions that are uh, a, a little more crafty or, or just things that we can just do, you know, without having to go through any kind of bureaucratic structure. Um, so that's that's a really nice benefit. And I don't think we could have achieved this look if we were under maybe certain constraints that other studios might be under, where, mm-hmm. um, or or with with the budget or the speed that we were able to do it at, we we were able to do this, uh, I think, in a very agile and, and speedy way. Um, so I think that's that's actually the the nicest thing about having a small team. But also because we're using, you know, tons of off-the-shelf software and we don't have the luxury of having. gigantic support team who, you know, we had all these TDs at Disney that would just, their only job was to wait until something broke, and then they would spend all of their waking time to fix this problem for you, you know, and and that was nice.
3: The white blood cells, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: (laughs) and and when things broke here, we would be the ones to fix it, but um, that in itself is nice, too, because then you have more control, and... Uh, it it felt almost like a student film uh, kind of mentality where, (laughs) you know, we we, we were touching everything. I mean, we were doing like layout and editing and, you know, all this stuff ourselves, but it it also meant that it was more of, you know, like a direct line from the vision or the concept and idea all the way down to the finished product where it was, you know, a a lot more control over the final image. And I Mm -hmm. think that's, that's something that you know, uh, like we talked about earlier with the details of the set dressing or you know what have you, like all of those things, I think it it was in part possible because we were able to touch everything.
3: yeah I mean, you you guys are talking to the entire layout and set dressing and layout finaling department right now. <laughs> so I think because of what Shafu just said, we wouldn't have to necessarily have a big uh, get-everyone-together meeting about shoe continuity or set dressing. Shaofu and Bobby and I are right next to each other like, you guys think maybe this shot it's just these shoes, or maybe like on this cut it'll just be these. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, okay, cool. And then you just change it in the scene and then it just goes down to the next artist who's going to receive it, and there was never a meeting about it, but an executive decision was in fact made. It was just made um, on the fly, but with consideration. So. I think at a place like Disney, they have very long, very arduous meetings about continuity, set dressing, the meaning of the set dressing, and you've got to communicate it down at least two layers of people um, so that the intention is clear, and that person who it's being communicated to maybe doesn't have a full picture that the director has got in their mind's eye, if at that point in time in production the director even does, they might still be discovering the story at that point. So the meaning might not be fully even understood yet on a production that big. So I think because we're making a short and we're a small agile team, you can contextualize your decisions really quickly. So everything can not only happen uh, efficiently, but on purpose. And that's, yeah, it's it's a luxury of being in a small team, but it's it's also comes at a price, of course, that lack (laughs) of infrastructure. Andrew, you were at Disney, how many years were you at Disney? I was at Disney for five and a half years. So it was October of 2011 to beginning of 2017. So when you're approached to to take on this new role at this new
1: company, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what were some of the things that went into that decision? What what were your concerns when you decided to leave the studio
3: to go to this new situation? That's a great question. Um, I'll provide some context for that. I wanted to leave Disney... um, on the highest note possible, because I thought hmm. for a while, for a couple years, I thought I was either going to try other things or go back to a life similar to my previous one of working at a smaller studio and making a lot of shorts um, over a short period of time. Because for six years before Disney, I worked at a small studio in Minneapolis called Make, and I directed short films, commercials, documentary pieces. Uh, I did some, like, live-action, on-site, you know, animation direction for what a VFX project was going to accommodate, Uh, and I liked it. I liked that my job was different all the time, and, like, the money was great. So it just didn't feel like Disney was better or worse. It was just different, Uh, and I think because I'd worked on so many hit films, it was just like a a lucky strike, man. Like, I got in on Wreck-It Ralph... And I was there on every single thing they did up through Moana, all the features, all the shorts between Wreck-It Ralph and Moana, and it felt like a lifetime's worth of privilege in half of a decade. And I thought, this is this is great. If I stay here forever, um, I might feel an itch to do other things. So I might want to leave after like after a truly, you know, euphoric experience, which for me was Moana. Moana was like the most fun, like. The crew, the direction, the talent involved, I mean, the Lin-Manuel Miranda music, my god. And then all of just the look of the film culminating in something that had such a high quality aesthetic to it. Everything about working on that film just felt great. And I think, I thought to myself, okay, maybe after this one, I'll explore other options. And there were other options on my mind. It wasn't like this quick decision. Um, I had been reached out to by a couple different studios, one large and one small the team in Spain making the film Klaus, the Netflix film, they offered me a position as a character lead, um, and that was a bucket list thing for me. Like, oh, 2D animated film and I get to be a supervisor, that's like two bucket list things for me all at once, and the timing is perfect, it's after you know Moana or Wreck-It Ralph 2, somewhere in there, I'm not really sure yet. So that was in the back of my mind, but I knew that doing that was going to be kind of like a different version of Disney, another big studio, it just happens to be 2D, Um, And so that was something I was like, okay, maybe I'll do that, but then we'll see what happens next. Um, I knew fundamentally I wanted to go back to doing kind of more of my own work, and I thought the only really truly pragmatic way of doing your own work uh, was to work at a smaller studio like I had previously done. Uh, It just felt like if you want to make a living doing that, you have to downsize. Um, So that was always in the back of my mind. So when Shaofu reached out to me, it was before I'd made a decision on anything else, and this sounded like something truly special. I saw the same opportunities that Shaofu saw with the changing marketplace, the growing audience internationally, and that there was an appetite for different kinds of movies. I mean, the anime film Your Name did gangbusters in China, and that's a great film and I can't imagine something like that performing that way in the United States. So my taste being a little more indie and maybe a little bit more, um, I guess, all-inclusive, I like the the most mainstream animation when it's done well, and I like the weirdest indie stuff when it's done well, and I just want to see more variety in the marketplace, and I thought what Shaofu is doing here feels like... I don't want to miss out on this. This feels like a great opportunity to be involved with something with a little bit more scale and hopefully still have that personal touch to it. And I think with the short, I'm so proud of the look of it. I'm proud of the team. I'm proud of the messaging in the film. I'm so proud of that. Um, Yeah. It just felt like the right decision to join this amazing team. That's
1: great.
0: So kind of going off of that, what do you guys, uh, this is, this is kind of like it's, Kind of a two-part question, what are your expectations for the film and what are your expectations for the audiences?
3: Well, That's a great question. I can speak to my own expectations for the film. Um, Just personally, as one of the co-directors on it and someone really proud of the animation in the film, um, I want the film to be a calling card for what people could expect from our studio, both the types of stories we tell, how those stories make the audience feel, and just recognizing uh, a creative identity in our work that they people would want to come back to and see more of. Like, the film, it would be great if, you know, there were, like, business prospects for the film that we didn't anticipate. You never know exactly how a film's going to do or what doors it opens up. But I do know for sure that I see the film as a calling card for this team and the amazing work that this team can create.
2: Yeah, I would say, uh, I, I would kind of echo that sentiment. It, I always felt like the short... Was kind of a prototype of the future projects that we would eventually do, um, and the, the the short was kind of this: uh, you, you got to crawl before you can walk, and you got to walk before you can run, kind of a thing. And it was kind of the initial, uh, basically a test of like, okay, yeah. we're we're a bunch of we're a bunch of people in a room, and we can do stuff pretty good individually, but can we do it as a team? You know, and it was it was kind of. Uh, that little experiment that turned out, I think, very well. And from that, there's, I mean, just the look alone on this sh- on this short, I think we're just scratching the surface of what is possible uh, with this technique. And, I mean, it, I, I think with this, I, one of the hopes that I had was proving whether it was possible with this kind of look to do animation in a completely different way than the standard almost photoreal uh Modern, you know, Pixar look, uh, and still have it be really appealing, and for audiences to be able to watch 90 minutes of it, you know, in at a feature level. And I think that was one of the cool things about this project was we're trying to push the envelope of what is possible in animation and kind of evolving the craft. And I think that was always one of the most interesting parts of this endeavor for me was. Uh, in in China, their their tastes are so much more varied. They, you know, Zootopia did great, but then also you had, you know, movies like Your Name and uh, Big Fish and Begonia was a, a 2D um, kind of a love letter to Miyazaki, and that did amazing. And uh, you know, like the the movie market over there is so varied. Like Bollywood movies do well over there sometimes. <laughs> you know, so the the, the taste there is. Uh, kind of this very international um, kind of market almost. More so than the U.S., I would say. And because of that, you know, there's room for all these different kinds of movies. And I think that was the most exciting part for me because I grew up on uh, Studio Ghibli and Disney and, you know, all kinds of uh, animation that is out there. And uh, I I don't think uh, in the U.S. there's, there's, uh, there's a thing about how the because there's big studios here and they have a certain kind of you know taste and 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 you know it's it's very understand it's very logical it's very pragmatic and it's the market it's very stable um, but for me the, the more interesting thing is what else can we do and what kind of stories can we tell because uh, animation is simply a medium for storytelling it's not a genre it's not a type of movie it's not just a family type film but you know it's it's just a way of telling great story.
3: Yeah, I think uh, to make an endeavor like this real, and you guys are asking us those, those questions, you have to be able to see the potential to, uh, to have an economically viable model for your work. Um, and so, like, in the U.S., there is a kind of pressure to, to keep up with the Joneses in terms of what the animated film should look and feel like. Um, and that's great. I mean, I'm really proud of all the movies I worked on. But yeah, everyone on our team has a lot of diverse taste in what we consume and in what we want to make. And I think because of that emerging diverse consumption in the international market, there's actually, at long last, the ability to imagine a different kind of film actually performing economically. That's 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 why. I mean, we're not like trying to delude ourselves. It's more like, oh, wait, maybe there actually is an audience that is out there for this stuff that we want to see.
2: Yeah, I, I think, uh, when that Klaus trailer came out, everyone that I, like, in in my animation circle, they were all so excited because it was this different kind of look, and, and like, is it 3D, is it 2D? It just looks so good, and it moves so well, and it just, is pretty, and the characters are just great, and, uh, yeah, it, it was like a really, it was such a cool feeling that somebody out there was trying new things and pushing the ball forward, Mm -hmm. and, uh, that was kind of one of the great inspirations uh, for us too. Yeah. we we referenced that uh, in in some of the uh, meetings that we had of like, oh, uh, how can we, you know, like, how can we do something where people will stand up and say, how'd you guys do that? That was cool.
3: Yeah, the the how did you do that factor is one of those magical aspects of animation. I mean, people know that animation's a lot of work. You know, like like building a skyscraper or something. and they know practically how it's done, but when it's finished, it's like, how did you do that? I mean, you look at uh, the buildings in Dubai, and I think, how did they do that? And I I know practically how they did it. There's a lot of people with a lot of raw materials who designed something in layers and stacked them together until there was a building, but I think there's something that animation can do at its best that it becomes marvelous, you know? It's almost like uh, P.T. Barnum, where you dazzle people when they don't know how it's done, and if you can move them with the stories you tell and then dazzle them with the visuals, it's a. I find it to be a very transcendent experience, and all my favorite films have that, like Ratatouille has that, Pinocchio has that, Fantasia has that, Spirited Away has that, and I think if we can even scratch the surface of that feeling, I think we're doing something right.
1: Hmm. That's awesome. I can't, I can't wait to see what comes next after hearing all that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, thank you for the support. It really means yeah, a lot. Thank and thank you, so you much, for guys. your very acute observations about the work, too. That's <laughs> super cool to talk about it with people.
0: Uh, thanks. guys. I mean, guys, thanks so much for coming on. This was, this was really fun. Now, uh, Andrew, I know you said that you're a big fan of the 2D aspect. And mm. is that something that maybe we can look forward to with Tycho going forward? Maybe something along those lines. Probably can't say anything. Just kind of maybe if I can shoehorn it, trip you up a Uh, little bit.
3: The door's open to a lot of different creative possibilities. Um, uh, Candidly speaking, I would love to see a feature film that looks and feels like one small step with a few more bells and whistles attached to it. Um, But we're open to a lot of different things. The most important thing to us is telling stories in a unique voice that have something different to offer than the other studios putting work out there.
0: Um, now, uh, Shafu, like, what do you hope for uh, the studio going forward?
3: Uh, for the studio
2: going forward, uh, we, we have a lot of things that uh, are in development right now that um, we can't talk about yet, but uh, I feel like right now there's it's a bright spot because we're, we're at this place where we just finished the short film, we're getting a lot of great reactions to it, and... Uh, there's a lot of uh, interest, both uh, professionally and just uh, from the audience, uh, and I think going forward, yeah, it, it, I do feel like we're just scratching the surface of something that we can develop into something that is even more magical and, and more, more interesting, and uh, just pushing the envelope forward. And I think going forward, it's we're we're really going to focus on. You know these these bold, striking visuals married with great storytelling and things that move people, um, and I think that's that's the stuff that we're so passionate about over here.
3: It's hard to it's hard to ignore the positive reactions of any audience. I mean, when people are telling you how the look of the film made them feel or how the characters and the story made them feel, it's really hard not to hold on to that and want to nurture that moving forward.
2: Yeah I I think some of the stuff that um, maybe not surprising but I I thought it was interesting uh, to note is uh, there's been a lot of reaction to the fact that it's uh, Asian character that is the main character and and you uh, a lot of people have told us that you know you just don't see that in uh, media too much these days and uh, the the representation is just really cool to have uh, Asian character and for women uh there were so many women that came out to us and and said uh, you you guys created a female character and she was not sexualized at all in the story, and she was just a person and a human being, and she had a life and that was so cool and and I guess at the time that we were making it we 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 never considered like making some kind of um like uh specifically pointed at that direction where it was like, yeah, we're we're, we're going to make a female character and we're going to make her this way. It, w- it was just, we wanted to tell a story about a girl that had a dream, and, uh, but it was so cool to hear that, and uh, maybe a little sad, too, that, that there's not more <laughs> of that in the world where, you know, like, it, representing these characters that are, aren't portrayed uh, necessarily in a more natural way or that aren't represented too much at all, I, I thought it was just so cool that we got these kinds of reactions.
3: Yeah, it really is. And I think from a creative standpoint, it was neither cynical or altruistic. I think it was more just, what have we not seen? Mm -hmm. You know, we Mm -hmm. don't want to just feel like other things that we've seen before. So Mm -hmm. having it be a single father who's older, a little blue collar, and very traditional, it was like a compelling personality to want to depict and animate. And then with her, I mean, She's a bit tomboyish and she's very driven and she's a bit clumsy and reckless at times. And they were just qualities that we thought made her a fun character. And uh, my girlfriend makes it into the film quite a bit, both in mannerism, appearance, and behavior. <laughs> and even just like down to like suggesting certain moments <laughs> or certain reactions. And like I was telling some of the animators, like I can tell what kind of day Julie's had just based on the way she closes the front door, even if I'm on mm. the other side of the house. And if you can get that feeling in your animated character, you've got some honesty to, to work with there. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it is just finding the truth in the character as well as something that feels real and familiar that we've all seen 100 times, but doesn't make it into a lot of the media that we consume. Um, So really, it came from a place of wanting to just do something that didn't feel like you'd seen it a thousand times. Absolutely.
1: I I love that there's just... uh, there's a high five with a boy that
3: sits next to her in class. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, yeah. Fantastic. So one,
3: one of my, uh, my friends at Disney, she called out that moment. She's like, I love when they high five. It suggests so much, so much history with so little. And we're like, we just thought it was funny. Like, cause they're next, <laughs> they're always next to each other. And sometimes they get, they look kind of annoyed with each other, but when they both pass the test, it's like, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, <that's> great. <laughs> we got each other's back today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Again, guys, thanks so much for coming on. This was this was really a lot of fun.
3: Oh, thanks so much, you guys. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Josh, Jared, it's a pleasure. Yeah, uh, no thank problem.
0: you. So um, now, where can everybody um, find you guys uh, social media-wise?
3: Oh, well, tycostudios.com is our, is our hub, and then it has a portal to all of our other socials like Instagram, Facebook. I think we have a Tumblr now. Uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn and uh, Twitter. Follow us on yeah. Twitter. It's probably the... I I like Twitter because it's easy. You don't have to be, like, on your phone. You can be anywhere. Computer. I mean, Instagram, you can be on your desktop, too. But Twitter, I just find, is, like, the easiest to stay up to date on stuff. Um, And then Instagram, if, if, if you prefer your phone, is probably the other easiest way to stay up to date.
1: And where's uh, the next best place for people to view this? Because I'm going to be busting wanting to talk about this with people, and I know not (laughs) everyone has access
3: to it. Yeah, um, so I I feel very strongly that as soon as it's satisfied its festival requirements, we make it widely Mm -hmm. available, either on iTunes, YouTube, or some other platform domestically. Uh, I know its release strategy in China is going to be similar but different because it's a different market but for now the the honest answer is it's got a few more months of festival um, mm-hmm. requirements to fulfill and then we because we absolutely want it to be as widely available as the people asking us do um, so we'll make sure that that is very clearly announced when the time comes.
0: Nice awesome and we'll keep everybody up to date as well. now Jared, what about you?
1: Uh I'm at jmariyama.com um I'm on the squared Co. podcast you can find that at squaredcode.org and links to all the stores and all that fun stuff there so you can find me there
0: Uh any galleries coming up?
1: Uh just underground stuff at Disneyland I got a few appearances coming up in June and July but that's about it for for that no big shows uh not until the end of the year we got some stuff coming up
0: Are Yeah i going to be doing that uh, I know Gavin's doing that Deadpool thing in a couple months Right, mm, not
1: doing that no, 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 not doing any Deadpool. <laughs> uh,
0: and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Josh L. Kane. You can find the podcast on Instagram at Animation Station Podcast on Facebook and Tumblr at Animation Station Podcast or on Twitter at Animate Podcast. You can also find all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean and on our website, Animation Station Podcast. Dot com. And we'll put all the links to everybody's social media, websites. We'll put all that in the show notes. So all you have to do, click on that. You can find whoever you want to check out. Click on them, and it'll take you right there. Again, guys, thanks so much for coming on. Um, Andrew, uh, Shavong, Jared, thanks again. This was this was super fun. Thank, Thank you so much. you guys. Really yeah. appreciate it. All right. So Thank for you. the Animation Station Podcast, I'm Josh. Me? So-
1: <laughs> I'm Jared. <laughs>
0: And I'm Andrew. And I'm Shafu. Bye, everybody.
3: See you guys later. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Yeah.
0: See ya.